You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find leaders and legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. For joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast, our guest today is historian and author William Inboden. He received his PhD in history from Yale University. He used to work in the Bush White House a few years ago, and he has written a brand new book, which I have read and highly, highly recommend. It's called The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan in the White House and the World. Professor Inboden, thank you very much for coming on thank the you, podcast. Thank you, Robert. It's great to be with you. Well, your book is, it's an eye opener. You know, a lot of us who tend to gravitate towards certain periods of history. I don't know how many books I've read on Watergate 15. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? You're always looking to to learn something new when you pick up a book about that subject. And I can definitely say I learned a lot about reading your book. I'm a huge Cold War history fan. Uh, Reagan at Reykjavik by uh, Ken Edelman is one of the my favorite, favorite books. But in reading yours, you tell so much of the backstory. This is what happened when the doors were closed. This, this, this is what they said to each other in private letters that I found it really illuminating and, and just want to take my hat off to you. Well, thank you very much. I sure do, sure do appreciate that. And that's the highest praise, of course, that, a, that an author could get is a, a, a happy reader who feels like he learned something from it. And you certainly understand what I was trying to do in, in researching and writing the book. Well, plus we both agree that Ryan Streeter is one smart SOB. Yeah, that's right. So, Ryan, I hope you're listening. You got you got a number of fans here, certainly with the two of us. So. <laughs> Let's get right into it. Your your book chronicles Ronald Reagan's Cold War foreign policy from the time he was elected in November of 1980 until he relinquished office on January 20th, 1989. Um, I'm going to ask you some kind of general questions to set the tone for the Leaders and Legends audience. And then we'll get into maybe some specifics. What did Ronald Reagan get 
wrong about the Cold War, the Soviet Union, and sort of his overall approach to foreign policy? So, um, <clears throat> it's a it's a great question because uh, you know. A lot of what I talk about in the book, of course, is the many big picture things I think he got right. But again, no, no, no president was was perfect. Um, I think uh, Reagan was perhaps a little more optimistic about the possibility of eventually getting to abolishing all nuclear weapons, getting an agreement with the Soviets to abolish all nuclear weapons. Uh, it's certainly something he worked towards in you know the the sec- second um, second half of his, his presidency. Um, but he and, he and Gorbachev uh, couldn't couldn't quite get there. Um, he was. Uh, this is not so much a a policy question, but a personnel one. He was, I think, wrong in some of the people he picked for his team early on, who didn't necessarily share his views of the Soviet Union or his theory of the case. You know, the the main one there, of course, would be Secretary of State Al Al Haig, um, who Haig was a little bit more from the you know he was a protege of Nixon and Kissinger. Uh, and more coming from the detente school of wanting to look for areas of you know cooperation and reduce tensions with the Soviets rather than Reagan's uh, belief in their 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 vulnerability. Um, the only thing I could think of when you were writing about and you do such a good job of describing him is is when William Seward attempted to kind of take over the Lincoln administration in the first years of the the first months of the Cold War. What is it about? Hague or secretaries of state when they tend to kind of just get out over their skis a bit. Yeah. And one of the keys to understanding Hague, of course, is he always wanted to be president. He thought he should have been president. And uh, when you know Reagan picked him as secretary of state uh, or offered it to him, Reagan's team said to Hague, listen, we're only going to offer this to you if you understand you're not the president. And Hague, of course, said the right things. I know I'm not the president, but he just uh, in his in his heart of hearts, he just had not given up that that, that hope. And so, uh, when you know Reagan is lying there in the hospital uh, bed after the assassination attempt in March of uh, 1981, and Haig has that very infamous, you know, I'm 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 in charge here. Uh, <laughs> I try to give some context for how he said that, but everyone was reading it through the yeah, you really do think that you're you're the president. So it would have been better if he'd at least gotten the Constitution right, but you yeah, know, he, he didn't yeah. even get that. He wasn't even actually, I mean, he was technically in charge because he was in the room, but he had to say, this is the Constitution we have here, gentlemen, and he didn't seem to get that uh Yeah, he that was part putting right. himself out of the, the vice president and the Speaker of the House and the president to approach him. <laughs> so, yeah. What did Ronald Reagan in broad terms, and, and let's say Reaganism, mm-hmm. what did they get right about the Cold War and the Soviet Union and the world. So, yeah, I think the key to understanding uh, Reagan's strategy, his Cold War vision, his theory of the case, as I mentioned, is when he took office, he saw the Soviet Union as a combination of strong and weak. Uh, he recognized its military strength and its, uh, you know, rather malevolent threat towards uh, towards our European allies, our Asian allies, and even to the United States itself, because the Kremlin did have a formidable m- military. Uh, but he also recognized its weaknesses, its, um, you know, terribly inefficient and corrupt economy, its illegitimacy in the eyes of so many of its own people who, you know, resented essentially being prisoners in, the, in their country without, you know, any political or or, or religious freedoms, uh, and the ideological bankruptcy of, of communism. And we look back in hindsight, and it seems rather obvious that the Soviet Union would be brittle and, and weak. But as I try to point out in the book, 
very few people recognized that at the time. And Reagan was out of step with expert expert opinion. You know, the Soviet Union had been there for several decades, and it was assumed by most foreign policy experts it was going to continue to be there for for several more several more decades. And so, for Reagan, it was about recognizing the strength and threat from the Soviet Union in the near term and deterring that, but also recognizing its weakness, its vulnerability, and exploiting that. That's a great point. Leads me to my next question, which I'm going to ask my next, next question first, and then my next question, which you led me right into. It's fair to say that, that Ronald Reagan, that the view of him personally, the estimation of his intelligence was not positive that his, his, his critics not only thought he was wrong, but they thought he just was intellectually incapable of understanding that he was wrong, which are two different mm-hmm. things. Uh, I, was it Clark Clark Clifford called him an amiable dunce? Yeah. Uh, Haynes Johnson wrote that book, Sleepwalking Through History. I think that's what it's called. So, yeah. so, so there was a lot of condescension, condescension mm-hmm. about Reagan's intellect and his view of the world. How did how did President Reagan handle that? And if you had to guess, how do you think he reveled in the fact that he was ultimately proven right and they were proven wrong? Yeah. Yeah. So he was uh, regarded by you know his critics and elite opinion of the day as wrong and dangerous and dumb. And those are obviously three, you know, worrisome <laughs> things in the president is true. Now, I think all three of those were were, were incorrect, but that's why he inspired so much, uh, you know, revulsion and criticism from, uh, you know, you know, so many opposing members of Congress and journalists and elite opinion. But Reagan, what, you know, really came out in my research uh, from reading, you know, every page of his diary entries, his private correspondence, the transcripts of his meetings with, with foreign leaders. Um, he was very comfortable with himself. You know, he had a strong uh, Christian faith, and you know, kind of sensed that he was, uh, you know, there to there there to serve God, and was you know less concerned with public opinion. Uh, he uh, had, was very politically savvy, and he knew that there's a certain advantage to being underestimated by uh, by by your critics. Um, and so he would uh, he would sometimes even even play play that up, um, and. Uh, and there's uh, even though he was uh, competitive, you know, he he liked to win as any good you know successful political leader does, and had very strong convictions. Uh, he was not a very vain man, and so while every now and then he would you know take some private relish if he had you know proved one of his critics wrong or they were put down or something, um, he was more concerned with doing right by his country, making the world a better place winning on the issues um rather than necessarily uh you know any 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 vanity or any proving of his his critics wrong or any or any tri- triumphalism like like that so i um you know i closed the book with the the final foreign policy speech he ever gave in public life in december of 1992 you know so four years after he left the white House. and it's um it's uh you know, he's not trying to uh, do an end zone dance on, oh, we won you know, peaceful victory in the Cold War and everything's great. He is happy about that. But he's also warning his country and the world that, look, challenges still still remain. You know, there's still other malevolent forces at, at work abroad. America still needs to be uh, le- leading in the world. And, you know, that's where partly where I get the title of my book from. His final words are the work of freedom is never done and the task of the peacemaker is never complete. And so. 
so he, I, I, I emphasize that partly because that was his message to his country and the world, but also this was not a victory dance for him or a sense of uh, smugness or, or vindication. Um, he was more concerned that, you know, his country would do right and that the issues would be handled appropriately. And if you had told someone in November 1980 that you were going to write a book about Ronald Reagan after the end of his that details his two terms and the title would be Peacemaker, what would what, what do you think people would have said to you, given given the the charge, the fear, the paranoia that Reagan was going to blow up the world? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would have been ridiculed and laughed left off the stage, right? No, in November of 1980, I had just turned eight years old. So they'd also wonder what's this eight-year-old kid think he's doing. <laughs> so, yeah. But um, no, I, I mean, and I still, as I've seen some early responses to the book, you know, one thing a number of people are seizing on is, you know, the title, The Peacemaker, and saying, oh, you know, wasn't Reagan more more of a warmonger? Um, we know now, of course, that he wasn't, but that was, that was the concern even then. And so uh, people, you know, you know, many Americans, certainly his critics, worried that he was going to lead the nation into uh, a reckless war, maybe even a nuclear war. Um, they certainly didn't see him bringing peace about. Uh, they assumed that the Cold War was going to be with us forever. And so they were very skeptical of any of his efforts to actually bring about a, a, a victory in it, let alone let alone a peace, peaceful victory. And they didn't take him seriously as a, as a strategist. Uh, and uh, so I think more was a sense of like, all right, well, hopefully he can help restore the American economy at home and then we can otherwise survive his, his dubious foreign policy. Um, but as I tried to lay out in the book, you know, from the get go, he had a much more sophisticated vision of combining uh, uh, pressure and uh, using, you know, coercive force towards the Soviets, but also diplomatic outreach and and, and hopes for a, a negotiated surrender, as, as I call it. Take us back to 1980. You were eight. Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. I was I was 12. Mm -hmm. And I remember that time very well. So, so take the Leaders and Legends audience back to that time when the Cold War was raging. The Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. Uh, Reagan won, I think, 489 to 49 over Jimmy Carter, a resounding uh, rejection of the incumbent president. Mm -hmm. There were uh, demonstrations throughout the world in the hundreds of thousands. And there was this media drumbeat that was anti-Reagan from the get-go. Just, just think about talk for a little bit about what Reagan, what Pre Ronald Reagan stepped into and the forces aligned against him and kind of what the world was like in 1980, because it was about the worst time I can remember in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously we're dealing with some some challenges in the world right now. But I think by, you know, just by any measurement, um, the fall of 1980 was was much worse. Right. And when when Reagan's elected. And so, uh, you know, first of all, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll summarize it this way. It seemed that the Soviet Union was winning the Cold War and the United States was uh, weak and in terminal decline. Um, so our economy was the mess. You know, unemployment was very high. Inflation was running away. You know, obviously we're dealing with some, you know, inflation problems now is much worse than uh, we were coming out of uh, several years of the energy crisis from the Arab oil embargo that had really, um, you know, crippled so much American industry and even uh, American drivers, you know, having to wait hours at, at the pump to fill up our, our cars with very expensive, expensive gas. Uh, we had the Iran hostage crisis going on, you know, um, 
55 Americans being held hostage over a year in, in Iran by the, the revolutionary regime regime there, another symbol of American weakness. The Sandinistas, you know, supported by the Soviets, had just uh, taken over Nicaragua. You'd had the Nicaraguan Revolution. Uh, and and that 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 was the culmination of a, you know, all through the 1970s, communist regimes seemed to be on the march. They had taken over Angola, they had taken over Vietnam, they had taken over um part part of part of Yemen they had taken over Ethiopia they had taken over Nicaragua so it seemed that Soviet communism was on the march and America was was really weak and then finally it seemed to a lot of Americans that the presidency itself was broken the last by 1980 the last American president to have you know completed two terms was Eisenhower 20 years earlier and since then, five American presidents had failed to do two terms. You know, Kennedy was assassinated. LBJ didn't even run for re-election because he was so crippled by Vietnam. Nixon resigns because of Watergate. Uh, his successor, Gerald Ford, you know, doesn't even win um, re-election for one full term. Jimmy Carter had just been defeated by Reagan, too. And so there's a sense from a lot of Americans that the presidency itself is, is broken. And so Reagan inherited a very... A discouraged, demoralized, weakened nation, um, and a very difficult hand, both at home, home and abroad. Uh, and, and that's why I really try to break that out in the book so people understand that the uh, the policy successes that he did enjoy were not inevitable, were not foreordained, and very few people expected them at the time. For the historian, looking back, when you write about past events and they turn out in a certain way, you know, of course the North was going to win the Civil War. Of course. We're going to win, you know, the United States or whomever is going to win World War II. How tough is it for a historian to to tell the story without giving away the ending, even though we all know the ending? So it's certainly a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge in the researching and writing of it. And then, you know, the uh, I guess the, the final final crack into the book. I mean, so one thing I tried to do and, you know, any of our readers here will be the judges of this is really as much as possible, put myself in the the mind and uh, looking at the world through the eyes of the people I write about, especially President Reagan, but also others on his senior team. And even though Reagan had a, a hope and confidence that he was pursuing the right strategy, as I try to show, he didn't know for sure it was going to work out. Nobody knew for sure. And every day, uh, he and his team, when they're going into the West Wing there of the White House, um, you know, to try to lead lead America, they're quite literally worried this could be their last day on Earth. This could be, you know, the, the, every day is a, a threat of the world being destroyed in a nuclear holocaust if we go to go to war with the Soviet Union. And so having that terror and that uncertainty, um, I think, help is a, is a, uh, a way to appreciate just how you know, ter- terrible the pressures were on them, uh, and the the difficulty of the decisions that they were making, uh, especially when you know some of their critics are are, are sec- second guessing them. So, I, when readers read it, I hope they can you know kind of mentally put themselves into that position and pretend you don't know how the how the story ends. <laughs> Hard to you're do. listening. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We are talking with Will Imboden, a professor of history. He has written. The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Brink. He talked about reading his diaries, President Reagan's diaries, and all the research that you did. Let's say you get to ask Ronald Reagan two questions. What would you have asked him? Boy, this is those that that is a great question. All right, so I can I can ask him too. Um, I think the the first question would be. Um, 
when did he really decide that his strategy was working in, in the Cold War? Um, you know, I can see, as I mentioned, he had confidence that it was the right one overall, but uh, you never you never you never know for sure. Um, and so I can well describe in the book the unfolding of his strategy and some of the adaptations he he made. Um, there's never a moment where it seems to click for him where he says, aha, now I know, now I know that this is this is working. That that is that is that is one. Um, and. You know, the other question I would I would ask him, this is a much more particular one about episode I described in the book, is why he didn't launch the retaliatory strikes after um, Hezbollah, the Hezbollah terrorists, uh, bombed our marine barracks in Beirut in 1983. Um, and as you saw, I'm, I'm fairly critical of him there. I, I think it should have been done. Uh, this was a horribly traumatic episode for our country you know the worst loss of uh, loss of life since uh, you know for our armed forces since since vietnam um and there was a big debate that reagan and his team had about should they do retaliatory strikes and um and he and he didn't and i, I see some of the indications why but that's that's another question i would have would have liked to have asked him because i think it's it's one of you know it's a it's a mar on what's otherwise a pretty strong policy record and it seems to be a theme in your book that the the leaders associated with President Reagan who were in the defense realm were more reluctant to use force than, let's say, the people who weren't secretary of defense or chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Why do you think that is? Oh. Yeah, I think Vietnam is a big part of it. Um, so, you know, when when Reagan took office, uh, you know, when he takes the oath of office in 1981, that's almost eight years to the day after the last American combat troop had left Vietnam. And as we all know, eight years goes by quickly. So Vietnam was not ancient history. It was a very recent, recent trauma. And much of what Reagan was trying to do with the military was not just uh, literally rebuild the military with, uh, um, you know, troop increases and better, better equipment and better weapons, but rebuild and restore the military's morale uh, after, you know, the, what at the time was the first lost war in our country's history. And so that Vietnam hangover, uh, you know, pervaded the Pentagon and like rightly made the, the Pentagon very cautious about getting using force again and getting, you know, maybe dragged into a, another another lo losing war with, you know, un unclear goals. Then related to that is, uh, you know, one principle of strategy is uh, keeping, you know, uh, is uh, setting priorities and making difficult choices about the trade-offs. And for the Pentagon, the the priority was rightly deterring and defeating the Soviet Union full stop. And any potential uh, use of military force that would that some might see as tangential to that, especially say the the mission in, in Lebanon and Beirut, uh, but even you know some of the retaliatory strikes against Libya that I that I discuss in the book, uh, or even the Grenada operation, uh, you know one could make a case that that's a distraction from the main goal of uh, deterring the Soviet Union. So I think that that also explains part of it. Ironically, as I described in the book, it was the State Department that was usually more interested or willing in, in using using mm -hmm. force than the Pentagon. Is it fair to say that President Reagan and his team's approach wasn't a direct repudiation of detente? Or do you think it's more, more direct than that? And let me ask the question, in 1980, what was wrong with detente? No. Yeah. Uh, and so for your listeners, since um, uh, detente may be somewhat unfamiliar to our, our current current generation, 
Detente was the uh, strategic approach to relations between the United States and Soviet Union that President Nixon and President Ford and then you know National Security Advisor and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger had developed. And the idea was, uh, let's look for ways to lessen the tensions between our, our two countries uh, in, in the Cold War. Uh, it was not about surrendering to the, to the Soviet Union necessarily, but it was about uh, reducing tensions, reducing the risk of the Cold War turning into a hot war and destroying the world. Looking, are there you know maybe some areas that we can cooperate, or at least ways that we can um, uh, step back from the precipice of potential conflict? Because the Cold War had become so dangerous and so costly, and and for a time it does bear some fruit. You know, you've got some initial arms control agreements that the Nixon administration uh, negotiates with the Soviets. Um, the United States is able to reduce our defense budget somewhat after Vietnam, and um, as we were seeing, you know, it being so. Uh, so harmful to our to our economy, uh, but uh, what what Reagan observed is uh, detente goes from being a temporary uh, change in direction or tone for the Cold War into almost a permanent posture of uh, losing as slowly as possible, and that's st that's still losing. And what Reagan also saw, uh, and some other critics of detente is. You know, by the time the Soviets invade Afghanistan in 1979, after advancing, you know, with their proxy forces across the rest of the world, uh, detente was becoming a very one-sided game where the United States was you know, dialing back our defense spending, trying to reduce our our, uh, our confrontation with the Soviets. And the Soviets were just exploiting that. They were, you know, pocketing those concessions, taking them to the bank and trying to advance their power as much as they could. And so, um, so for Reagan, uh, he, uh, he, thought the United States needed to jettison detente and adopt a much more confrontational approach toward, towards the Soviets. However, as I point out, that doesn't mean that he uh, wanted to reject every last aspect of detente, and he still wanted to keep the route open for negotiations and for diplomacy. Uh, he just wanted to do it with a much stronger hand. He thought that detente had given America a weaker hand. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast, presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise. And sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We are talking with author and professor William N. Bowden, who wrote the book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and the world on the brink, and I would spend some time reading the reviews of this book, but they're all so damn good. It would probably take the next 15 minutes. You, we have some terrific Cold War and, and, and just general historians and scholars who have given the big, big thumbs up to your book, Professor Eden Bowden. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you. It's always an honor when uh, people I esteem say nice things about it. So. One of the things, I'm going to start throwing some names at you here for just kind of a quick reaction, but the one thing that I had never read before was about the, the, the conversations between Ronald Reagan and Dwight Eisenhower, mm -hmm. and that Eisenhower was a real influence on Reagan in, in kind of the mid-60s. Uh, talk a little bit about that, please. Yeah, this was one of the fun discoveries in my in my research. And while the book, uh, uh, you know, primarily focuses on President Reagan's eight years as president, his foreign policy, then uh, in the early chapters, I wanted to give some background and where his I, ideas and convictions are formed. And um, 
to give credit where credit is due, it was a, a former Reagan um, advisor and longtime friend, Tom Reed, and then a um, uh, a an author in uh, in Vermont, Gene Copelson, uh, who had both illuminated for me the really important influence that former President Eisenhower had on President Reagan. Uh, and it started when um, you know Reagan's first big iconic political moments that you know some of your listeners may be familiar with is the 1964 campaign when Barry Goldwater is running against LBJ for president, and Reagan gives his very famous "A Time for Choosing" speech. Uh, and you know, it's broadcast nationwide and introduces Reagan to America as a potential uh, you know, political voice. Well, former President Eisenhower was retired in um, uh, in Palm Springs at the time, watches that speech and thinks, hey, this Reagan guy's got some real talent. So Eisenhower reaches out to Reagan, says, um, you know, why don't you come meet with me? I'd like to get to know you some. And uh, Eisenhower essentially encourages Reagan to run for governor of California. So he really starts, uh, you know, uh, inspiring Reagan's early political career. And then they, over the next few years, they have a series of meetings, build, build a friendship. And Eisenhower, you know, provides uh, almost, uh, you know, a series of, uh, you know, clinics or tutorials on foreign and defense policy for Reagan. Talks about ways that the Johnson administration was getting Vietnam wrong, talks about some of the lessons of World War II, uh, the importance of restoring America's economic strength is key to our, our military strength and our, our leadership in the world. Uh, but also the importance of being cautious about the use of force and not, you know, getting involved in uh, losing, you know, expensive losing wars with large, large ground commitments as, as Vietnam had, had become. Uh, and then once uh, Reagan becomes governor, Eisenhower starts encouraging him to run for president, which was notable because Eisenhower's former vice president, Richard Nixon, was planning to run also. And, uh, and Eisenhower actually preferred Reagan to Nixon. Let me throw some names out to you, people you, you detail in this book a little bit, and you don't have to take very long, but just a, a paragraph or two, because I, I really liked in your book some of the personality sketches and how you how you discussed how important it was to Ronald Reagan to develop these sort of one-on-one relationships built on trust and, and hey, we can be candid with each other. Uh, I'm, of course, going to completely... Uh, <laughs> blow that apart by making the first name I send your way, Richard Nixon. So, yeah, the Reagan-Nixon relationship is just very complicated and fascinating. And I'll try to be brief on this, but as you know, there's a lot that we could go in there. But essentially, um, these two guys uh, really define Republican uh, presidential politics for you know almost 40 or 50 years, right? I mean, starting with Nixon being uh, Eisenhower's running mate in 1952. Over the next you know 40 years, um, or uh, so either a Reagan or Nixon or sometimes both of them is is either on the ballot or doing something very influential. They're both from California. They both originally had roots in the Midwest. Um, they both come from uh, impoverished uh, backgrounds and, you know, uh, really, uh, you know, climb up to tremendous, uh, tremendous political success through grit and perseverance and talent. Uh, and they both very were very respectful of each other, but they were also fierce political rivals. You know, Reagan challenges Nixon initially in 68. Reagan runs against Nixon foreign policy in 76. Then Reagan, of course, himself wins in 1980. But then Nixon, who's, you know, in uh, this, you know, disgraced exile up in New York at the time, starts writing Reagan almost weekly letters uh, in the White House with, you know, unsolicited political advice and policy advice. And Reagan, again, who, as I mentioned, was not one to hold grudges and not very vain is very interested in this. And he takes a lot of Nixon's advice. He disregards other parts of it. And eventually they they build a, a genuine 
I think a genuine friendship. They still have their their differences. Uh, but Reagan, in a gesture of great um, magnanimity, actually invites Nixon back to the White House. I want to say it's in 1987, his first time setting foot back in the White House again. Uh, a very gracious gesture. So it's a fascinating, complicated relationship. Margaret Thatcher. So, yeah, she's Reagan's closest friend among uh, among uh, other other world leaders. Um, and the bonds of friendship and affection and loyalty and trust between them is is really strong. Of course, they share free market convictions. They share anti-communist convictions. But also, as I detail in the book, they have tremendous friction. It's almost like a. Uh, an old married couple, if you will. Uh, I mean, nothing inappropriate there, right? But um, they know each other well. They hold each other in very high regard. But they also um, have you know big differences over initially the Falklands and then over Grenada, over the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. Um, and they have some uh, you know very uh, tense exchanges and, and disputes. But it all takes place within this context of deep commitment to the alliance, deep commitment to, to each other. And trying to keep a lot of this, this disputes private in house. Again, that's where I think the you know, the old married couple uh, analogy uh, fits into. So Thatcher is very important to him. Another person you mentioned several times, and and I think give due credit, and he is, and maybe he doesn't get mentioned enough. I don't know. I don't want to judge, but to me that. And if there is a watershed event of the Cold War, for some reason, and maybe it's because I'm Catholic, I think it's the election of Karawatiya to become Pope John Paul II in a brilliant strategic move by the Vatican. What about the relationship between the Pope and the president? And, and just how important do you think John Paul II was to how events eventually unfolded? Supremely important. Yeah. And um, for your listeners, uh, be forewarned, it's a fairly longish book, but the earlier draft was about twice as long. My publisher had me pair it back quite a bit. I only mentioned that because the earlier draft had a lot more material in relation Reagan's relationship with the Pope. Um, and I do think it's it's very important. And uh, just a few few themes to highlight. Um, when the Pope uh, is, you know, first first selected in, in 1978, you know, Reagan is out of office at the time. But Reagan is fascinated by this. You know, he gives a, a number of radio addresses talking about the importance of the first Polish Pope, you know, the first non-Italian Pope in, in centuries. Uh, he's captivated by the Pope's first visit back to Poland, you know, under, you know, you know, then under the, the boot heel of so Soviet communism. Um, and another thing that brings a deep bond between Reagan and the Pope is uh, the two months apart in 1981, they both survive assassination attempts that very nearly kill them. And Reagan, you know, had a, you know, his own very strong Christian faith. Of course, the Pope is defined by his his Christian faith. And so they they both have this kind of shared sense of provid, you know, providential destiny that God has spared their lives to help uh, bring a peaceful end to the Cold War. Um, so they both, they both hate communism. Uh, Reagan is very deeply committed to religious freedom, especially for Christians and Jews and does a lot to support persecuted Catholics behind the, the Iron Curtain. And they they share a lot of intelligence. Reagan regularly has, you know, his CIA director, Bill Casey, is a very devout Catholic. He regularly has Casey and other senior officials, Bill Clark, going over to the Vatican to give the Pope, uh, you know, intelligence briefings. And of course, the Pope has his own great intelligence network of, you know, bishops and priests behind the Iron Curtain who are, <laughs> you know, sending him information, which he in turn would pass on to, to the White House. Um, so it's a very, very important important relationship. It really defines so much of the, the spiritual aspects of the Cold War. So much of the Cold War discussion, once you get past Vietnam and, and the opening 
to China in February of 72 really focuses on Europe. But what you did in your book is talk a lot about Reagan's elevation of the relationship between the United States and Japan and his support for Prime Minister Nakasone and Nakasone's support for the United States and its geopolitical goals. That was really a part of the book that I had never really understood or had hadn't encountered before. And I thought it was a, a terrific addition. Why did you decide to make that such a, a strong point of, of what you wrote? Yeah, well, uh, this was one of the surprises, Robert, in my research was just how important Asia in general and, Je- and Japan in particular were to Reagan and his overall you know, strategic vision for the Cold War. And again, we need to remember, even though so much of the Cold War seemed focused on Europe, you know, with the Iron Curtain and Berlin Wall, it really was a global war. And, you know, J- uh, Japan was, you know, just right offshore from the Soviet Union itself. Um, the Soviet Union had very, you know, aggressive designs in in the Asia-Pacific region. And when Reagan took office, um, most Americans saw Japan as primarily an economic rival. You know, we were dealing with uh, Japan was, you know, doing unfair trade practices. It was really hurting American manufacturing. But also, of course, Americans were buying more and more consumer goods and automobiles made, made in Japan. But there was a real frustration with a lot of Americans that uh, some of our economic, you know, some of Japan's economic gains were coming at our, our expense. And Reagan had to pay heed to that, but his vision was to transform the U.S.-Japan relations from primarily an economic rivalry to primarily a strategic partnership. And I'd mentioned Thatcher earlier, but I think Reagan's other closest friend among world leaders was actually the Japanese Prime Minister Nakasone. You know, they're both very charismatic. They really connected on um, kind of a, a deep, deep personal level. Uh, they both took political risks for each other. And just to give you know your listeners one example of how Reagan's able to make that relationship work, uh, when he takes office, one of our frustrations was Japan was just free riding on the American uh, security umbrella. Um, they were you know putting hardly any money into their own military. They were depending on you know the American Seventh Fleet to to keep keep them safe. And Reagan uh, persuades Nakasone over you know the next eight years to triple Japan Japan's defense spending. This is like I said three times as much, you know, not just a percentage increase, three times as much. And Nakasone did that at tremendous uh, political cost himself. But with Japan spending a lot more on its own defense, that freed up our Navy and and Air Force to focus more on countering the Soviets rather than just only having to uh, defend Japan. Um, And so it's a great example of a uh, a close friendship that also pays tremendous strategic benefits for the United States and uh, put a lot of pressure on the Soviet Union on uh, on their eastern front when they were also focused with challenges on their western front. Is George Shultz the greatest or most impactful secretary of state in American history? I, I I come close to saying that. I think he certainly is the um the greatest secretary of state since John Quincy Adams back, you know, of the Monroe Doctrine back in the uh the 19th century. Um and I Schultz is uh, an indispensable partner for Reagan. Um, you know, Schultz is really key to so much of Reagan's diplomatic successes. And I you know, with apologies to other great secretaries of state, Henry Kissinger, James Baker, Dean Acheson, um uh as a John Hay. Where's John Hay get his juice? Uh, John Hay, no, that's right. There's been some great ones, but <laughs> but the six and a half years that Schultz served as Secretary of State, um, he is you know Reagan's indispensable partner for pressure and diplomacy with the Soviet Union. Uh, he plays a tremendous leadership role in the 
peaceful democratic transitions in so many countries in Asia and Latin America. Uh, he you know, eventually is able to really advance America's interests in the Middle East as well. Uh, if you talk to old career foreign service officers, career diplomats in the State Department, uh, almost all of them will speak with reverence for Schultz, saying he was the greatest one that they ever served under. And most of them will say, look, I'm a Democrat. I never voted for the Reagan administration, but Schultz was the greatest secretary of state. So I, I hope my book helps give him give him some due. Last but not least, Mikhail Gorbachev. And how did Reagan's policies purposefully lead to the emergence of the reformist leader that President Reagan had been seeking since he became president? So, I love the way you asked that question, Robert, because you I, I can tell you really picked up on one of the important arguments in my book. And you know, for your listeners, there's a um there's a debate among a lot of scholars and policymakers over who deserves more credit for the peaceful end of the Cold War, Reagan or Gorbachev. And Gorbachev is very important. I'll mention more on that in a moment. Um, but one of the things I argue in the book is that Reagan uh, developed policies from early on that were deliberately designed to pressure the Soviet Union to produce a reformist leader. And Reagan had been in office over four years before Gorbachev. Gorbachev even comes to power. But Reagan had laid out the strategy very early on that he wanted to bring the political and military and economic and diplomatic pressure on the Soviet system so that uh, the Politburo, you know, the geriatric uh, old communists, old Bolsheviks running the running the country would have no choice but to find a more reform minded leader who could actually negotiate with with the Americans. And they finally uh, picked that in Gorbachev. And that's one reason why Reagan recognized Gorbachev as a reformist leader earlier than most is he'd been he'd been he'd been looking for one. That's why I give Reagan a little little more little more credit for uh, for Gorbachev than than others have done before. Time magazine famously or infamously named Mikhail Gorbachev the man of the 80s, the man of the decade instead of just the man of the year. Mm-hmm. Would you have chosen him? Uh I I would not have. I would have chosen Reagan. Uh I would have, you know, certainly given Gorbachev pl- plenty of credit, but like like I said, um I I think that it's hard to see Gorbachev coming to power the way he did or when he did if it had not been for Reagan's policies. Um, and as you know, uh, Robert, from the epilogue, I get part of I, uh, one of the main sources of the book's title, The Peacemaker, comes from Gorbachev. That's a tribute he pays to Reagan uh, when after Reagan dies and Gorbachev says he was you know, a, a great, great peacemaker. So your epilogue is beautiful. It's a it's a very quick uh, description of Mikhail Gorbachev's uh, visit to Ronald Reagan's casket where he where he touches the casket and later says I just I just gave him a pat it's beautiful yeah. beautiful yeah. Um, Ronald Reagan has so many good lines it's kind of hard to select one but honestly my favorite always has been when they kept asking him is he going to meet with the leader of the Soviet Union and he as a 72 74 75 year old man says they keep dying on me yeah. So, yeah. In the <laughs> space so, of three years, three Soviet leaders, Brezhnev, and then Andropov, and then Chernyko, they all they all die on him. You know, and it and it kind of symbolized the the disease and the rot within the Soviet system itself. That even its its leaders keep keep dying from ill health and age. Reagan always believed, and it comes through in your book, that if you could talk to the Russian people, that they would tell you the Soviet Union is on the last leg. I remember in Ken Edelman's book, uh, Reagan at Reykjavik, I think it's Gorbachev who snaps and correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't read the book in several years, but says something to uh, foreign minister, uh, Shevard Nazi of the Soviet union, like 
we can't even provide our people with toothpaste. Like that's how bad things are. And here we are, you know, trying to be a player on the world stage. How did Ronald Reagan seem to connect with, with the Russian people, even though he only visited, visited the country once you talk about that, the dissidents you're there, you are our only friend in the world or something like that. You're the only thing we have going, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I'm glad you mentioned Ken Edelman's uh, Reagan at Reykjavik book, because that really is a terrific one. And I, you know, hope your listeners will uh, will read that one too. Ken's a friend and was great help to me in putting this book together. Um, yeah, this is very important understanding. Reagan hated Soviet communism, but he had no ill will towards the Soviet people, especially the Russian people. Um, you know, Soviet Union, of course, was you know several different countries mashed together and held together. But um, he was rather fascinated by the Russian people, and and any time he would meet with uh, Russian dissidents who'd been released from prison and exiled to America. Um, uh, he was always asking them about conditions inside the country. What are the people like? He was fascinated with the pers- the resilience of um, religious faith among so many of the, the Soviet people, even though they were living under an you know an officially atheistic system. Uh, this is where the the American author Suzanne Massey plays an important role in the story. Where um, you know she she would travel to Russia a lot, meeting with literary figures there and. Um, uh, and cultural figures and would come back and meet with Reagan in the White House. And he always wanted to ask her, you know, what are the Russian people thinking? What are they feeling? What do they think of America? What do they think of me? What do they think of their government? Uh, and, and so that's why he did so much outreach directly to them, you know, with his speeches, with uh, with radio broadcasts, um, and of course, with his um, iconic visit to Moscow in May of, May of 1988. And part of his strategy was to support the Soviet people in their own desire for a better life. And that better life would entail getting rid of their, their wicked government, you know, the wicked <laughs> system that was, that was oppressing them. Um, so. June. I, I know you're going to be, you could, you could finish for me, professor M. Bowden. I know you could June 12th, 1987. Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. You detail in your book, the internal debate within the Reagan administration of of the president even saying that line. Mm-hmm. It's a terrific part of your book that it keeps getting yanked out and it keeps getting put back in. And ultimately, it seems that Ronald Reagan says, no, I want to say this. Please, please describe to us a little bit about that internal debate and and the effect of Ronald Reagan saying that to the world, to the Berliners that June day. No, no, thanks for highlighting this. It's a very important part of the story. And again, really shows presidential leadership at its finest, because as you know, as as you mentioned there, um, almost all expert opinion at the State Department within the National Security Council, uh, you know, you know, Secretary Schultz himself were telling Reagan, don't say those words, it's going to be too provocative. But the background really matters. You know, Reagan had always hated the Berlin Wall. He had first visited it in 1978. Uh, he'd been back in 1982. So this was not a um, kind of a one-off impulsive taunt on his part. He saw the Berlin Wall. And again, for your younger li- listeners, uh, the context is um, the Soviet Union had built a uh, a, a prison-like uh, concrete wall covered with barbed wire dividing Soviet-controlled East Berlin from free West Berlin. And it was not the, the wall was not designed to keep West Berliners out of uh, East Germany. It was designed to keep, you know, trap the East German people inside their own country. And so for Reagan, that just 
epitomized the barbarity of communism, that it would build walls to keep its own people imprisoned, um, and that it would divide such a you know historic uh, and and powerful country like like Germany, its its capital city. So he had long wanted to see the wall the wall come, the wall come down. Um, and in 1987, you know, he's built already a pretty good relationship with Gorbachev. He's met with Gorbachev twice in Geneva, and then and then Reykjavik. There's a sense that maybe, you know, uh, reform and even peace and reduced tensions are in the air. But Reagan was not going to uh, take his foot off the gas, if you will. And so when he goes to goes to Berlin and he gives that iconic speech, he wants to say this wall needs to go. But he doesn't just say tear down this wall. He says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's his direct Big challenge. Difference. Big and, difference. Yeah. And it's, and it's a reminder to everybody. It's not the Germans who put up the wall dividing their capital city. It's the imperialist Soviet communists. And they they put it up and they can they can tear it down. Um and again, Reagan is ridiculed for saying that. You know, foreign policy experts say it's uh, it's a silly taunt; it'll it'll never happen. Uh, but the people who matter most are the people of Berlin, and they hear that message, and they know the United States, the American president, is on our side. He's on the side of restoring our freedom. He's on the side of reunifying our country and our capital city, and that you know certainly plays a role in inspiring them to later you know tear down the wall just you know less than less than two and a half years later in November of eighty nine as he as he calls for it. So Gorbachev, of course, didn't like hearing it, but Reagan, every time he saw Gorbachev after that, said, "I meant it. Tear that thing down." We have a few more minutes with uh, Professor. In Bowdoin, talking about his book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Brink. You mentioned Reagan being ridiculed by the intelligentsia and the media and maybe perhaps the career uh, bureaucrat in, in federal government. But for however much he was ridiculed for saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, it was it was substantially less than the ridicule he faced and overcame in a lot of ways regarding the strategic defense initiative ridiculed as star Wars in our last few minutes here, before we get to the final five questions that we ask all of our, our guests, which I promise professor are harmless. Okay. <laughs> the Reagan's staunch belief in SDI mm -hmm. was perhaps matched only by the Soviets staunch in SDI, while so many other countries' leaders, academics, scientists, media members, politicians, elected officials, thought it was a complete joke and said, it'll never work. What are you doing? And that leads right to the Reykjavik summit where, where President Reagan has this monumental deal on the table and he walks away from it. Because he won't give up SDI, and I think it's one of the most courageous acts of foreign policy leadership in our country's history. Mm -hmm. So I've rambled. Talk to us about SDI, why he thought it was so important, and why the Soviets were so petrified of it. So, yes, exactly. It's supremely important. Uh, and you know, for for your listeners, um, uh, Reagan's vision with SDI was building uh, essentially a very elaborate missile defense system, which could shoot out, uh, shoot, shoot, you know, Soviet nuclear missiles out, out of the sky. Um, and there were two big strategic concepts behind that. The first was uh, his entire defense buildup and modernization had not just been about outbuilding the Kremlin, outbuilding the Soviet army, but also outsmarting it, of taking American technology, uh, our edges in, in semiconductors, uh, in communications technology and stealth technology, 
and building weapons systems that are so much more advanced than anything the Soviets can have, that no matter how much more they build in quantity, they will never match us in, in quality. The second strategic principle for Reagan was he wanted to move away from the balance of terror in the Cold War. This mutual assured destruction that the way to guarantee uh, that the other side doesn't uh, incinerate us in a nuclear attack is that we threaten to incinerate them. Um, and that was called MAD, mutual assured destruction. And he thought it was quite literally MAD. Um, and so instead, his strategic innovation was he wanted to um, move to a world beyond nuclear weapons where we could break break out of that. And so his vision for SDI was, was born of that. Um, the te technology, of course, was not developed at the time, but he... He's visionary. He's some, somewhat of a dreamer. He says, look, America has always been able to uh, develop you know, the world's leading uh, technological innovations uh, for our economy, for our military before. Let's at least give this a try. Uh, and Gorbachev was fascinated by and mesmerized by and also terrified by uh, America's technological advantages as well. And so he really thought SDI could work, too, which is why Gorbachev tried so desperately to persuade Reagan to, to give it up. Um, but uh, but Reagan, Re Reagan wouldn't because it was such a fundamental cornerstone of his entire strategy for bringing the Cold War to a peaceful end and ending the threat of the world being destroyed in a, in a nuclear nuclear exchange. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Professor Inboden, are you ready? I am. What was your first job? My first job was as a 12-year-old selling uh, Pepsis at University of Arizona football games. I was a I was a hawker, and on a good night, I would make uh, 18 to 20 bucks, and uh, as long as I didn't drink all the profits. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty that's a pretty great answer uh, i grew up in tucson arizona so shout out to tucson there yeah. number two what was your first concert so well my parents tell me that my first concert was seeing the eagles in 1975 when i was three years old when they took me to it uh but apparently i slept through the whole thing um <laughs> my first real concert that i actually remember and this is an iconic one was um U2's Joshua Tree tour at Sun Devil Stadium in 1987, where they filmed part of Rattle and Hum. So it was still one of the all-time great shows. Oh, brilliant. All right. These next three are tough, not because they're malicious, just because they're tough for historians. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Oh boy, this is uh, <laughs> you're, you can see on the screen here. I'm surrounded by a, a ma massive, massive bookshelf. So, and I uh, feel halfway decent about my book collection because a lot of the same books in mine are sitting on your shelves and probably Chris Spangles. So it makes me feel like I'm halfway smart. So anyway, all right. Well, I'll do a different one here, uh, which isn't a history one, but it is a book that I've returned to over and over over the years. Um, is uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. You know, I'm, I'm a you know, man of a Christian faith myself, and I just find that such a wonderful explanation of the truths of Christianity, but also just really speaking into the human condition in ways that are really timeless. So I seem to return to that every every few years. You know, it, it was first written in the early 1940s, but it's um, certainly, you know, a, a one I would recommend to just about anybody who hasn't uh, hasn't had the pleasure of reading it. And what's the title again? Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. So the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, among others. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Oh, wow. Um, I would have loved to have been at the uh, 
United States uh, Constitutional Convention in, in Philadelphia, 1787 um, to uh, 89, just sort of seen so much of the of the birth of our country there, but also so many of the debates about uh, you know the proper role of state and federal government and the three branches of government, um, not just as a exercise in governing, but a uh, you know real exercise in um, forming the identity of our country. And a lot of the debates we're we're still having today. The last question is, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record to discuss anything you want, whom would you choose? Oh, boy. Well, I will say uh, Henry Kissinger. Uh, he is 99 years old. Uh, so I'm I, obviously he won't, you know, with, you know, human mortality being what it is, none of us are here forever. And, you know, obviously his his days are and will have their limits. But um uh, he pops up in my book a few times. I've had a few conversations with him over over the years, oh, that's but great. Uh, chance to have a yeah one on one conversation for a couple of hours. So much of his life spans uh, uh, so much of the the most pivotal events, starting with World War II and the Cold War, and um, uh, and you know the shifting tectonic plates of the 21st century. Uh, he's a great historian, obviously a great great statesman, and a fascinating person. I actually read his PhD thesis or dissertation. Oh, a, a world restored, right? So, yeah, and it was, ter- I mean, I understood most of it, but I'm sitting there going, man, this dude really kind of knows what he's talking about. It was a brilliant yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, he's he, he is he is amazing. He's It's an amazing mind. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been Professor William N. Bowden. He is the Executive Director and William Powers Jr. Chair, the Clement Center for National Security. He is also an author, and I can say that his last book that we've discussed on this podcast, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Brink is absolutely wonderful. You mentioned that it is rather long at about 490 pages. I read it in six days. I couldn't put it down. It was amazing. It's a wonderful work of scholarship. Very, very readable. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you, Robert. I've had a delightful time. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.